So in our preaching series this fall, we're gathering around Jesus as he's revealed by that first century eyewitness, Mark. And last week, we jumped right into the deep end. We heard Jesus asking his disciples, his students, who people were saying he was. And one of his students, Peter, says, you're the Messiah, you're the Christ, you're God's chosen one, you're the Savior of the world, the person who's going to restore the relationship between the Creator and creation. And then Jesus shocks them all by saying that the Son of Man must suffer and die. The Son of Man, the term appears in our reading this week as well. It was a term that referred to the expected Messiah. The prophet Daniel writes about one like a Son of Man who's coming on the clouds in glory. He's going to conquer the world for God. But there's nothing in that prophecy about him dying a shameful death. So this was shocking for Jesus' students to hear. Bishop Jenny called this the great reveal and the great reversal. The reveal, I am the Messiah, and the reversal, but the Messiah is not like you think. And as we saw last week, this reveal and this reversal has implications for people who want to follow Jesus, who want to call themselves Christians. Because Jesus says, if this is who I am, then this is what it means for anybody who wants to be my follower. You've got to lay down your love of self. You've got to lift up your willingness to suffer for others. Now, in our reading, the gospel reading for this week, this is the second time in the gospel of Mark that we see Jesus predict his death, and something similar is happening here. This jarring contrast between what Jesus' students, his followers expected, which was this person who was going to raise an army and kick out the hated Roman occupiers, and what Jesus knew to be coming, which was his betrayal and humiliating, violent death. So they're on the road. They're walking through the countryside. Jesus has been traveling around healing and teaching. And it says Jesus didn't want anyone to know where they were, none of those crowds that surrounded him everywhere he went, because he needed to teach his disciples this core teaching that the Son of Man would be betrayed and killed and resurrected. But his disciples don't get it. It says right there in verse 32, and they're afraid to ask him about it, and this is a feeling all of us can relate to. You might have to think back to your grade school days, but all of us have been in a situation where you didn't understand what was going on, but you didn't want to ask a question because you didn't want to show that you didn't understand what was going on. So they keep going. Fast forward to the city of Capernaum, which is sort of a home base for Jesus' ministry, and he says, hey, uh, what were you guys arguing about there on the road? And I guess maybe he had dropped this hard teaching on them, and they got quiet, and then he sort of walked on by themselves, and then they burst into conversation. You could tell they were agitated amongst themselves. Like, maybe they were arguing about what it meant that their teacher had just said this wild thing about being betrayed and killed and rising again. But no, they're quiet again. They're too embarrassed to admit what has actually happened, which is that they were arguing about who was best. Like, who was the best among them? I was with my daughters at the playground the other week, and I heard these kids arguing about who was best at playing this particular character from Fortnite. And this is sort of the situation I imagine. What a thing, right? Like, Jesus tells them what's coming to them, and they don't get it. And then they go quiet, and then the second that they're alone, they just start debating who's the best, like who's the favorite student, who's the head boy. It's just ridiculous. It's a lesson in missing the point. But anyway, back to Capernaum. So Jesus asked them what they were arguing about, and they won't answer because they're embarrassed. But he knows because 
he's Jesus. So verse 35, uh, he sits down. That's the posture of a rabbi, a Jewish teacher who's taking a position to teach with authority. They sat to teach. Rabbis sat to teach, and here Jesus is sitting to teach. And he calls the 12, the 12 guys, he's named apostles, which means sent. These are the ones he's sending out as his chief messengers. There is this hierarchy among his disciples, and these 12 are the core group. And he says, whoever wants to be first must be the very last and servant of all. And then he illustrates the point. They're in a house somewhere, probably the home of one of the disciples uh, who's putting them up. Maybe Peter and kids are running around because that's what kids do. And one of the kids who's around, Jesus embraces him or her. Mark doesn't say if it's a boy or a girl. It doesn't matter. It's a tender image. And he says, wait for it, this is really important. Whoever welcomes one of these little children welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. Whoever welcomes a child welcomes me, okay. And if you welcome me, you welcome the one who sent me, who is God. So if you welcome one of these little children, you welcome God. Huge if true, right? Like, are you kidding me? Of all the questions you might have in life, how can I know God is probably at the very top, or like it ought to be at the very top. And right here, Jesus, Jesus just tells us, how do I know God? How do I have God in my life? Welcome one of these little ones. Holy cow. We can read through that sentence like we're reading some normal words like a menu or the classifieds or a view of that strangely awesome Ted Lasso that debuted on Friday, but whatever. But pause and think about what this means. Like if I sent you an email and in it I was like, yeah, things are good. Here's what's up with the kids. There's a billion dollars buried underneath a tree in your front yard. We're hoping to take a drive to see the fall colors, hoping the Seahawks have a good season. You'd be like, let's rewind to that part about the billion dollars in my front yard. This is a billion dollar sentence. You want God in your life? welcome one of the little children. Jesus says so. But here's where we've got some work to do. Because we are reading this sentence through, verse 37, through 21st century Western eyes. And in our culture, children are prized and treasured and protected. A missing child can be a national news story, but it hasn't always been like this. And in fact, what we assume to be normal that children are celebrated and precious, the idea of childhood as a distinct and important phase of life with entire branches of the government dedicated to protecting it, it's pretty novel, historically speaking, just a couple hundred years old. But in Jesus' time and place, and in fact most times and most places, children were not viewed as sacrosanct. Instead, as one scholar writes, children represented the absolute bottom of the social and economic scale of status and rights in the ancient Mediterranean world. The value of a child was the adult that they were going to become. And I'm, I'm not saying that people didn't love their kids, but kids weren't protected and kids weren't special. So when Jesus says, whoever welcomes one of the children welcomes me and thus God who sent me, he's not saying, Look at the children, aren't they cute or precious little darlings? To see the innocent face of a child is to see the face of God. No, no, no. That'll play on Facebook. That's not what's happening here. So what does Jesus mean then when he says to welcome a child is to welcome him? 
Why does welcoming a child mean receiving Jesus? In the context of our reading today, what is it about a child that makes this true? This billion-dollar statement, what is it that makes it true? It's the fact that children are powerless. It's the fact that children can't defend themselves from disrespect, from harm, from violation. It's the fact that children have to live in a world that they've had no hand in shaping. The fundamental powerlessness of a child is why Jesus says that to receive such a one is to receive him. Because remember, this is the end of the lesson that started back on the road with him predicting his death that he would be handed over into the hands of violent men. This is the end of the lesson that started with Jesus describing a powerless Messiah, a son of man delivered into the hands of others, a manhandled son of man, a son of man whose body ceased to be his own, a son of man made meat when they nailed him to a cross. Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all, Jesus says. And he should know because he is God before everything, and he died on the cross. He became last to serve and save us all. He did what he tells his followers to do. So if you want to be my follower, Jesus says, if you want to be my student, if you want to carry my name, if you want to call yourself a Christian, you've got to do like I did. And the greater you want to be, the lower you'll go, because that's what I did. I went to the bottom by being lifted up when they opened up my arm. So if you want to be great, follow me down. Cast your sights low, look down, and open up your arm. It's precisely because this shocking powerlessness is the character of God's chosen one that receiving a child who is by nature powerless and vulnerable means receiving Jesus. It's because the crucified Messiah is like a child in that way. And if we understand this, then we see the full impact of what Jesus is saying here. That it's not just by welcoming children specifically that we welcome Jesus. No, no, show me a human body that is powerless and vulnerable. Show me a human body that is powerless and vulnerable because it is too old or too young because it is the wrong color, or the wrong sex, or the wrong shape, because it looks, or moves, or thinks different, or it can't move, or it's locked away, or it believes the wrong thing. Show me a body without a voice, a body that can't command regard, a body that can be disrespected with impunity, a body that can be violated and discarded, and I will show you the Christ of God. To welcome such a one, by extension of what Jesus is saying here, to be kind, to be gentle, to seek their good, to welcome such a one is to welcome God in the flesh. Okay, so I said this was a billion-dollar sentence. Whoever welcomes me, one of these little children welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. And a billion dollars would change your life, right? So here's Jesus talking about downward mobility. How's that change your life? How's it change your week? How's that change today? And the upshot is actually that it'll change everything 
Because when Jesus says, if you want to be the greatest, you've got to serve the least, isn't that an implicit critique of the way we usually act? Like, he wouldn't have to say that. He wouldn't have said that if that's the thing we did all the time anyway, just because it came naturally to us. But it's not, and we don't. Why do we serve anything? Why do we give people and institutions and causes our time and money and loyalty? I mean, sometimes it's out of fear. We serve someone or something more powerful than us because we're afraid of what they'll do to us or say about us if we don't act the way we think they want us to. This happens in bad family dynamics, doesn't it? This happens in bad workplace dynamics. This happens in bad politics. We serve sometimes out of greed because we think that someone more powerful than us can give us the thing we want if we do the thing that they want. But always, whenever we serve, we serve something more powerful than us. That's what normal service is. We're contributing our little piece of power to make something more powerful even more so. And in fact, all of us live our lives in the social structure, the architecture of this service of power and money. The world is an anthill of people avoiding pain and seeking gain. But all the greatness we strive for, naturally speaking, in our politics, in our professions, even in our families, none of it lasts. We're like people frantically trying to climb the back of a cresting ocean wave, as if it's going to endure, as if it's going to stay there, if it'll hold our weight, as if the froth at the top could preserve us from the depths below. And it's easy to lose sight of all this, to think that normal, because humans are resilient creatures, so, you know, you live in a situation, you start to think that normal, like this mask, like this is just the way we live now, think that the normal way of being is okay, that the way things are is the way things have to be. Until Jesus says, whoever wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. And then you realize, like someone waking from sleep, that there's another way you can do things. There's another way you can look at things. There's another way to be. It could be different. And that's the kingdom of God, where the people the world puts last come first, and the people who are first, according to the world, put themselves last. And the greatness of this community here at St. Paul's Bloor Street this community of people who bear Jesus' name is never going to be in the grandeur of our efforts. It's going to be in how we welcome the little ones. Now, I don't know if you feel powerful or powerless. I suspect we'd be split. But I do know we're all on a spectrum, and it changes throughout our lives. Like, none of us were born strong and nobody dies strong. But no matter where you are, I think it can be easy to hear Jesus in this passage and kind of throw up your hands like, here's another impossible thing Jesus is asking. An ethical burden. You know, like maybe Mother Teresa can pull this off, but not the rest of us. But here's what I want you to understand. I'm not meaning to lay this on you as some kind of impossible challenge. The words of Jesus right here, they are an invitation to freedom. They're an invitation to freedom. The first must be last is really good news, if you'll let it be. Because it will liberate you from the relentless need to climb 
and attain and gain and achieve. It will liberate you from needing to be first. Because the only thing that lasts is God's love. And I don't know your circumstance, but I guarantee you that before the sun sets, you will cross paths with someone who needs a welcome of some sort. And this will happen to you every day, every day, throughout the day. If you want God in your life, God isn't sitting waiting at the top of the heap. But the world is full of Christ waiting to be welcomed. Our streets are stippled with God if you only look down. And if we live like this, we can let go of the striving for greatness and welcome the powerless instead. If we can seek to be last, not first, if, if our greatness hangs not on what we accomplish but on who and how well we love with the unknowable number of days that we have left, if you live your life as a servant of all, you will live free. <laughs>